Well, good afternoon and a very well, warm welcome to the Wren Suite here in St Paul's Cathedral uh, for this Sunday Forum. My name is Jonathan Brewster, I'm the Canon Treasurer of this Cathedral and it's my great privilege to be able to chair the meeting today. And let me explain for those of you who may not have been to one of these before uh, how it works. Our speaker will speak for about 40 minutes, uh, then we'll have 20 minutes or so for questions and then we'll wrap up uh, at about two o'clock or something uh, uh, like that. Let me introduce to you our speaker for today. Father Nadim Nassar is the Church of England's only Syrian priest. He was born and raised in a Christian family in Syria and studied in Beirut during the Lebanese Civil War. He has lived through four wars and described how when living in Beirut, he would find himself crawling through the library at his seminar to avoid snipers and get his books before going back to write his essays. He has said that being there in a war for one single minute changes you forever. Father Nadim is now the director of the Awareness Foundation, which he established in 2003 with Bishop Michael Marshall. It seeks to counter intolerance and mistrust and to build understanding and relationships between people of different faiths. In his first book, The Culture of God, uh, it's published this autumn, and the BBC's Edward Sturton said about it, so much of the reporting of the Middle East reflects war and human misery. It's inspiring to find in this thoughtful and engaging book a message of hope from what Father Nadim calls that region of the world that God chose to live in when he took human form. There are copies of the book available for you to purchase uh, at the end of our event this afternoon. But for now, would you please welcome Father Nadine? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. Very gracious and generous introduction. Actually, it is true. Um, I have friends from Beirut here amongst us, and uh, we remember the time um, in Beirut during the civil war in Lebanon and um, yes it was it was very difficult we used really to crawl to the library and open the door of the library no light was uh, allowed and going inside the library taking the books and crawling back to the to the basement to write the essays so that we don't miss courses and we don't miss um, our deadlines to avoid snipers and, and all the, the, the horrible war. And later, when I graduated from Beirut, 1988, the war in Lebanon was not totally over. I felt I wasn't supposed to live the war. Many times during those seven years, I was supposed to be killed, literally. I was sniped at by a machine gun which was designed for aeroplanes. With that machine guns, 
somebody shot at me and my friend from Jordan and the bullets came between us directly I mean I don't think he could he could have he could have done it again so just for the shot to be just to come between us me exactly between us and I remember walking in the most um, prestigious street in Beirut, Hamra Street. It's like it's like Oxford Street here, and um, and a soldier was uh, in front of me with his RBG. Do you know what RBG is? It's it's a a, a, a small rocket launcher. So he puts the rocket launcher on the on his shoulder and fires. When you fire with this. Two meters of flame shoot behind him. So, and he, he was walking with the rocket launcher down, and I was behind him. And suddenly I decided to overtake him. So as I was walking beside him, suddenly he decided to launch a rocket because he saw something. So he took the rocket launcher, and fired, and the flame shot behind him. And 10 seconds, I would have been burned to death. Just 10 seconds. So after seven years of hell in Beirut, and after I saw with my own eyes The battleship New Jersey. Have you heard of the battleship New Jersey, the American battleship? Shelling Beirut and the suburb of Beirut from the Mediterranean Sea. The aim was to end the war. Imagine a battleship shelling a city, a capital, would end the war. And many people believe that lie. And the next day, the night of Beirut turned into day with the launching of rockets and rockets and rockets whole night. And the next day, the war continued and many people died and many homes were destroyed. And the battleship New Jersey could not stop the war. The same thing is happening today in Syria. We are facing a proxy war. A proxy war that everybody claims that they want peace to that country. And I tell you something, everybody lies. And every single country, including our own country in this wonderful country, the UK, Politicians are lying. Nobody wants the peace in Syria. They want to pursue their own interests. I lived the war in Syria. I talked to the war people, to the torn apart society. I just came back with Huda, my sister, from Syria two days ago. Two days ago. And the situation is dire. And no one can see 
any peace agreement or settlement in the horizon. And everybody claims that they are working for peace. It is amazing that we still repeat our awful history for generations and generations and deceit the people that through violence we can restore peace. I remember when I started working on the book The Culture of God, the whole idea came because after I graduated from Beirut, I felt every single day after the 27th of June, 1988, when I graduated, <clears throat> every single day, from that day until today, is bonus. I shouldn't have lived. And God has given me that mission of peace. But that mission of peace, which is not the opposite of war, The opposite of war is not peace. The opposite of war is a situation of no war, but it's not peace at all. Years and years and years ago, Egypt and Israel signed a peace treaty in Camp David. Do you remember? Sadat, Begin, and Carter, and they thought they brought peace between Egypt and Israel. And since then, I visited Egypt like four or five times. And I tell you something, nothing even close to the word peace is the situation between Egypt and Israel. So peace is not a treaty we sign, is not a piece of paper. It is not the end of violence in a certain situation. What is it then? What do we want? When I thought about <clears throat> the culture of God, and I asked myself, if the basic, the very basic definition of culture is the outcome of people living together in a certain place, in a certain time. I repeat, if culture is the outcome the result of people interacting with each other, living in a certain place and a certain time. And the elements of that culture, or the result, is like what? What do we call culture? Give me examples. Culture consists of what? Like what? What do we call culture? Language, art, 
music, history, literature, the way we eat, the way we, we dress, the way we speak, religion, all these elements we call culture. This is the basic definition, the very basic definition of culture. Well, that is culture. What is the basic definition of God in the Christian faith? What is the very basic definition of God? Who is God in the Christian faith? What is God? Who is God? Creator. Love. Supreme being. But in the Christian faith, we define God in a way that other religions do not accept. For us as Christians, God is Trinity. Thank you very much, Serge. God is Trinity. Trinity, if Trinity, is the reality of God and not a philosophical abstract idea that we project onto God, if Trinity is the ultimate reality of God and the basic reality of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then the eternal interaction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the eternal interaction, whether we existed or we didn't exist, regardless of our existence, this interaction between the three persons in the Trinity must produce what? Culture. Because if we are created on God's, we are created on God's image and likeness. So, and culture <clears throat> is the result and the outcome of us interacting with each other. Then, in the Trinity, when God interacts with himself, then he produces a culture, or she produces a culture. But, we have very, very, very limited access to that culture, if any. Because we have no access, because God lives beyond time and place, right? God is beyond our time and space. Because of that, it is impossible for us to access this culture. And we have glimpses of this culture, but we, don't, we didn't know that these glimpses were called the culture of God through the creation. Look at, at, at the creation. Look at the universe. Look at the, the physics, the science, all the beauty, everything around us. Give us a little bit, a glimpse of that culture. But we didn't know that. We wondered about it, but we didn't know what it was. So, if you wanted to know, if you wanted to know the Syrian culture, and you, you go and you, you read about it, and, and you, you see films about it, and, and all this, would that be equal to talking to a Syrian? It wouldn't be equal. The best, the best ambassador for a culture is a person who 
lived in that culture, right? That's the best. If I'm telling you I am a Syrian, and I've come to you and I talk to you about my experiences and my life in Syria, then you would believe me. You would understand what a Syrian culture means. So, because of that, we come to another thing in the Christian faith. If the incarnation is serious, if we take that God became a human being really seriously, and we believe in that, then the only person who revealed the culture of God was the one who came from the culture of God, which is Jesus Christ. So, the Incarnation and the Trinity work hand in hand. So, the one who lived with God came to us to reveal to us the original culture he lived, which is the culture of the Trinity. Difficult? So, when you live in war, when you live in violence, when your life is threatened day in and day out, you start thinking about God in a different way. What, what made me think of, of, of the culture of God? Is this the concept of peace? I will give you a couple of examples. Otherwise, you don't need to buy the book. Um, just a couple of examples. One example, when Jesus was on the boat with his disciples, okay? Remember that, that story, incident? When he was with them on the boat and the storm was roaring outside, what was he doing? What, what, what was he doing? Sleeping. Come on. I went with my brother. My brother used to be a captain of a ship. And after I graduated from Beirut, his gift for my graduation was to take me on a trip in the Mediterranean Sea and to Europe. When we went into the Biscay, remember geography? In the Biscay, there was a storm. And Nassar, my brother, his name is Nassar Nassar, Nassar Square. He called me in my room and said, Nadim, come up immediately to the bridge. Of course, the, the brother of the captain had access to the bridge. So I went to the bridge and I looked and I tell you something. I panicked. I was terrified. When I looked through the bridge, all glass, and I saw the lightning, just like the veins of the sky, I said to my brother, oh my God, can we survive this? And he laughed. Well, he laughed because he was used to it. But for me, idiot of the sea, Although my nickname at, in, in Latakia was the, the son of the sea, but I never experienced such a storm. So, and suddenly, 
the, the ship was going this way and the wave was coming this way. And I said to my brother, that's it. He said, just observe what happens. And my eyes were, were fixed on this wave coming whoom, and the, the ship just was diving into the wave and coming the other way. It was unbelievable. And you tell me in such a storm, Jesus was sleeping? Hello? Sorry, there is something wrong. The disciples were panicking, although they were fishermen, to the extent that the fishermen were panicking, and Jesus was not a fisherman. He was asleep. There was something wrong in this. He knew. He wasn't an idiot. He knew the storm, and he knew the disciples, and he knew the situation. He wanted to demonstrate to them the inner peace. The inner peace which takes you away from the storm, which gives you inside a space of safety. This was what I was looking for in Beirut. This was the challenge between me and God inside the war in Beirut. Where is this space in me that I can run into and feel safe inside the storm? Well, I tell you something. This is not a theory. This is something very practical. When you can find in you this point of gravity, this chamber of, of peace that nobody could understand, nobody can identify with except the one who experienced that. So he was sleeping. So if we take the story from three perspectives, one perspective is the perspective of the disciples. For goodness sakes, we are perishing and you are fast asleep? Don't you care that we are dying? The ship is about to break. They were panicking. They see him. They see the storm, they see the ship, it's over. Game is over in the digital world. And then we shift into Jesus' perspective. Find the inner space in you so that you can deal with the storm. All of us have storms in our lives, whether illnesses, whether breakdowns, whether losing our jobs, whether losing people we love, you name it. But can we find this 
chamber in us that we can go to so that we we withdraw, with, we, we, we absorb some strength and energy in order to face the storm. Jesus is not saying we should not face the storm. Jesus is challenging us in the way we, 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 we face the storm. And this is a, a very good example how he was centered. The disciples were not centered. Again, when they brought to him the woman caught in adultery. Do you remember? When, when, when the Pharisees brought him a woman caught red-handed in adultery. They brought her to him. They didn't bring her to him because they didn't know what to do. They always pretended. But they were weaving a trap. So what was the trap? She caught in adultery. The law says she should die. She should be Stoned. Okay. Here is the trap. We bring her to him and see what he thinks. If he says, stone her, what does it mean? What if Jesus had said, stone her? Hmm? Exactly. He contradicts himself. And plus, what is the big fuss about him? He's another rabbi. He's another Pharisee who is trying to, to get some attention. Give him some attention. And let's, let's, let's finish the whole story. So, nothing wrong, nothing right. He's one of us, one of the Pharisees. So what is the big fuss? If he said, let her go, what does it mean? He's breaking the law. Goodness gracious me, you break the law, you're finished. Because the Pharisees are the guardians of the law. They are the closest to God, God forbids, like, like us with this. Sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> I'm very critical to this. Um, so, if he said, let her go, the problem is terrible, terrible. He broke the law, and they could have got him. So, there is no way out. Either let her go, or stone her. What do we see him doing? Bowing down and doodling on the sand with his finger. Coming from Latakia and somebody here from Tartus, which is the, the coast of, of Syria, we know the sand at the beach and in the, in the streets of, of, the, of the coast. And I used to doodle in the sand. 
I used to have, and you see it in the book, I actually, I, I mentioned my best friend, my, my childhood friend. He used to tell me stories. He was a wonderful storyteller. And I was always longing for another story. I knew all of them, but I wanted him to, to, to repeat. And, and after, after a while, he would say, which story you want to hear? And I would tell him the story that I, I would love to hear from him. And he would, he would speak. And, and also, there is a whole chapter in the book about al-hakawati. Al-hakawati in Arabic means the storyteller. And Jesus was the immense and the fantastic hakawati, the storyteller. And I used to doodle in the sand. And he used to tell me the story. I know exactly how it feels, because I was there. I was in, uh, in, on the Mediterranean Sea. So he would bow down and doodle. Why would he doodle in the, on the sand? He gave everybody the chance to speak. And also, in this time, he found this chamber in him the chamber of peace, this sanctuary in him to refocus, to recenter himself. And then he would, he, he, they came like peacocks, you know, the Pharisees, and they always dressed the finest in, in, in the public places to, to get the praise, of course. So they were like peacocks coming and they thought, we've got it now. The trap is perfect. So the peacocks and the poor woman broken completely because she thought, no way out. And after, he, after a while, and after he found this sanctuary in him, he stood up. And said, what did he say? Who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. This sentence, my friends, does not belong to the human culture. We are not, we are our cultures even today cannot bring, cannot produce such sentence, such a statement. No way. He brought this statement from his own original culture. And that is the culture of the Trinity, the culture of God. The culture that gives us the inner chamber of peace, that we can have the ability to connect with God when we need to speak or to act or to face a storm around us. It's, it's the sanctuary that recharges our batteries and empowers our mind and warms our hearts to live the life 
in full. So when he said that sentence, that sentence opened all the horizons in my heart that this does not belong to us. It belongs to the heart of the Trinity. And because of that, we come and we approach peace in a very different way as Christians. Because the risen Lord, when he came and he said, peace be with you, my peace, my peace I give you. What does it mean, my peace? That peace, that, peace that he found on the boat and when he doodled on the sand, that kind of peace he gives us. Not the peace that the world gives in signing a treaty or stopping a bomb. But rather elevating humanity to meet divinity in his person. This is the peace that we are after. This is the peace that empowers us to face the storms of life. And this is indeed the heart of the passion, the mind, and the culture of the Trinity. 